Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Portland Trailblazers fans, and welcome to the relaunch of the Blazers Edge podcast, now renamed Trail Daddy. I'm going to talk about that in just a second, but for now, let me introduce myself. For those who don't know, I am Dave Deckard, managing editor of Blazers Edge, and it is a pleasure to be with you. As we said, this is the relaunch of the podcast world for BlazersEdge.com. It will not just involve this podcast, but there will be several others with other Blazers Edge staffers and assorted other people joining us. There will probably be three or four podcasts a week before it's all done. We are relaunching in a big way. Now, why relaunch at all? Well, as you know, if you've been a longtime reader or listener, we've done weekly podcasts basically for years and years, up until about five or six months ago. But our parent network, SB Nation, made a shift in priority and kind of deprioritized podcasts. And for a couple of reasons, it didn't make sense to continue right then with what we were doing. But we have come back in a big way uh, under our own banner, doing things in a slightly different way. And it not only will make sense to podcast, but it will be a great joy. And so we are glad to be here with you. Now, Trail Daddy, why that? Well, part of it is we can't actually use the Blazer's Edge name in this explicitly for a few reasons. And we were coming up with stuff, and I kind of uh, joked to our podcast director, eh, I should be the Trail Daddy. And he says, I love it. Dave Deckard is the trail daddy combination of trailblazers. And yes, your daddy. Why? Well, it's not just a nod to my advancing age, not yet a grandfather, but not yet the young spry person I was when I first started this. I've actually been doing this since 2006 now, which is 18 years. 18 years of writing, the first few years I wrote every single day, and not short news-based articles, but hundreds and thousands of words a day. As our site and staff grew, I pulled back a little bit into different kinds of articles, into these podcasts, into a little less frequent long-form posting, but I think it is safe to say now, after almost two decades, that while Many people in the uh, media world around here predate me. I mean, Dwight James has been around since the 70s, for gosh sakes, but he doesn't write daily or often anymore. Kerry Eggers is now retired, and there are a few others who have predated me, started before I did. But 
I think it is almost pretty safe to say that no human being on the planet has written more words or analysis about this team than yours truly. And over the years, maybe I've become your daddy, uh, both in terms of imparting knowledge and maybe course correcting or speaking uncomfortable truths sometimes. And so despite the slightly racy connotation, it just seemed to fit. And here we are. So I will happily fulfill that role uh, in this podcast, and I hope you will enjoy it. Now, the other thing you might wonder is, what about a co-host? Because all the years that I've done this, part of the purpose of the medium has been to help boost or launch other people. Phil, Danny, Dia, Marlo have all been with me at times. In fact, I've never done a solo show, and they've all been great, and I thank all of them. Every voice that we've had on here has been different and has been amazing. And... um you know, they've all gone on to do wonderful things. But at the same time, it felt like it was a little bit easier schedule-wise, and maybe it was time, just in this era where the Blazers are rebooting, that we should reboot the podcast concept as well. And instead of making it a longer podcast where we go back and forth, as entertaining as that is, for a while at least, it's just you and me. And we'll get down to analysis and some perceptions that come straight from myself, and that'll make things more compact uh, and also easier to put out every week. So, here we are, episode one, Trail Daddy. And I'm going to dedicate this episode to the big picture of the Trailblazer season so far. As we are talking, they are just coming out of the all-star break of 2024. Their record is near unmentionable at 15 and 39. And a lot of stuff has been swirling around the team. A lot of complaints, a lot of angst, a lot of whatever. And also, in rebuttal to that, much as it was when I started in 2006, which the Blazers had just come out of the jail Blazers era. Sorry, Sheed, I'm going to use that term because we all know it. But they had come out of a spate of terrible losing, the lowest point in the franchise, and were having to reboot much as they have this year. And back then, one of the reasons that I started at Blazer's Edge and really developed its tone and voice was that in response to this wave of negativity came a wave of toxic positivity, where we were kind of inventing things to be happy about and then screaming when people didn't agree with us almost whistling past the graveyard, uh, high-fiving the wolf with our little Red Riding Hood basket as we walked by, ignoring the fact that the basket contained, what, 20 wins in an 82-game season, so Grandma wasn't going to be pleased either way. But that, that wave of having to push back and defend the team, which gets in the way of actual clarity, truth, and analysis just as much as the rampant negativity does. And so somewhere, not in the middle, that's the misconception too. The truth isn't in the middle. It's often on one side or another. But it's not just about the truth. It's about how it's spoken and how it's used. And so we're going to dedicate this podcast to speaking truth, this, this episode of this podcast, to speaking truth, but also clearing up some misconceptions that have been hung on that truth like bad ornaments on a withering Christmas tree. So, we're going to cover half a dozen of them, 
let's start right now with the number one biggie, the one that's hanging in the room. That losing is terrible. Now, losing is not fun. I don't think anybody's going to argue that 15 and 39 is anything to be proud of. It's really hard to generate anything positive out of that. However, come on, folks. If you read our season previews at all after Damian Lillard was traded, if you read the analysis and the questions facing this team and what they'd have to go through just to get this roster functional, let alone playing cohesively, you had to know this was not going to be a good season for wins and losses. There was nothing that was going to make this season work well. And there's no magic coaching recipe. There's no magic trade. I mean, the trade deadline, you, you saw us also say that the Blazers were going to be quiet. And that was not a bad thing because what they needed could not be obtained on the trade market. The only thing that they could do is either make a half-hearted stab at something that wasn't going to work, giving up one or two of their best assets in Malcolm Brogdon or Jeremy Grant or Anthony Simons on the way to doing that, or give those same players away to accumulate future assets that they already have enough of. So neither the losing nor the inaction during the losing is as bad as people are saying. Obviously, when you're going through the valley, it's easy to point out that it's dark and those walls on either side of the path look pretty steep and unclimbable and it's rocky and you can't see ahead. But you know what? There's that old uh, story in the, in the Hobbit that's the prequel to the Lord of the Rings for you kids who don't know. And the uh, dwarves and Bilbo Baggins go through the forest of Mirkwood and they end up climbing a tree to try to see how far it is to the other side, right? And when Bilbo gets to the top of the tree, it seems like there is no other side, like the forest goes on forever. But what he does not notice is he's actually in a dip on top of that tree. In other words, the tree is standing like in a dell or in a valley. And so he's looking upward at the rest of the trees and can't see beyond the higher treetops. And if he could just see, if he could just get a little higher, he would see that it actually isn't that long. Now, I'm not saying that the Blazers are going to turn this around quickly. They probably can't. But you know what? The forest ahead isn't endless. And the possibilities of finding an edge and some sunlight are going to happen every summer, every trade deadline, and in some ways, every game after this. So... If you can get through this year and just swallow the fact that they're going to lose and gauge success by other things for a little bit, probably you are going to see the path get easier. And even if you don't reach the end of it, you're going to see possibilities where you could get a lot farther than they seem they can right now. So I'd like to put away the angst that losing is terrible or the end of all things. Now, we're going to get to that in the last point again um, and talk about some other things. But let's move on to number two. In contrast to that, we've also heard that the Blazers losing is all about injuries. 
And you know what? It's been a really crappy year for that. Uh, it broke my heart when Shaden Sharp went down for an extended period of time. It also kind of broke my heart when Scoot Henderson did at the beginning of the season, but he's come back. And you've seen his improvement since he has, even though the team itself has not markedly improved. I hope the same will happen for Shaden Sharp. The thing that grieves me about Sharp is he really needed this season to step out, and he was starting to do so when the injuries took him out, but maybe at least he can play some of the final third, and then next year, hopefully, will become his season without injuries. If he can't play a season without injuries, now we have another question entirely. But we're hoping that these injuries will clear up and it just happens to be salt in the wound, bad luck, piling on bad luck in a year they were going to lose anyway. So if you're going to have a ton of injuries, I guess this is the year to do it. But let's be real. When you look at the players on the floor, when you look at their skill sets, when you look at their gifts and talents, and when you look at their continuity, even if this team were healthy, and even when this team is healthy, they're actually not playing that well now they've gotten a little boost by having jabari walker come in the lineup at power forwards like jeremy grant down and deandre ayton is healthy and the three of those make a slightly bigger front line than the blazers had which helps their rebounding it gave them a spark especially in the interior for a little bit they played better interior defense for a while but they also had trouble getting out and covering the perimeter and the interior defense didn't stay that much better. So I don't think there's any argument that this team, as constituted, is ready to win, let alone contend. So let's acknowledge that the injuries are terrible and inhibit continuity and all the stuff. But you can't go so far as to say the Blazers are injured and that's why they're losing. They're going to lose anyway. And that's just a reality right now. There's a similar one. It's all about missing shots. Now, there is some truth to this one, too, because you know what? The Blazers do get open shots that they miss, really of two varieties. One is you get their dribblers who are manufacturing shots in traffic and are skilled at creating separation, but cannot finish as well as they clear themselves from the defender. And you know what? That's an NBA-wide problem in this generation. This is not unique to Portland, but Portland has some very young hyper-athletes who absolutely have million-dollar speed, million-dollar dribbles, and as they say, 10-cent finishes, right? They're working on it. It's getting better. But, you know, it looks like those shots should go in when they get that separation off the dribble. It's harder for them than it looks. It's more frustrating for you watching it than it is indicative of something going wrong in play. The other variety of shots that they miss is wide open three-pointers. But you've got to look at who's taking those. If Jeremy Grant has a wide-open three-pointer, he usually hits it. If Anthony Simons has a wide-open three-pointer, he usually hits it. But who's getting the wide-open three-pointers? Matisse Thibault, 
who's decent, but still not great. Tumani Kamara, who is not decent or great. Jabari Walker, same story from out there. And you know what? That is intentional. That's not an accident. And the two feed into each other. Opponents are sending traffic into the lane to bother those dribblers and prevent them from getting separation. And the price the defense is paying is leaving Portland shooters open. The reason they do that is because they know that open or not, Portland shooters probably aren't going to hit, at least not the ones who are standing out there on the perimeter at that moment. So it's kind of accurate, but also misleading to say it's all about missing shots because they're not going to make those shots. And there's a reason that those shots are either open on the perimeter or extra covered on the inside. And that's not just random luck. It's literally a roster construction issue. Also somewhat a systemic issue. Now, I think that head coach Chauncey Billups has got the Blazers doing a reasonably decent job generating shot opportunities on offense. I don't have a whole ton of complaints with what he is doing or what the team is doing on that end of the floor. Their production is obviously very low compared to their NBA brethren. But that is also a function of roster construction. For instance, I've, I've heard people complain about Jeremy Grant, like, oh, he plays iso ball. Well, what is he going to do? I mean, Jeremy Grant is willing to be a complimentary player. He can pass a little bit, and he doesn't have to be the number one option. But you know what? Who's he going to pass to, especially if Anthony Simons is injured? Who on the floor is he going to toss that ball to who's going to get a better opportunity than he can generate? The answer is basically nobody. And you know what? At best, the next guy, if Simons is out, might be DeAndre Ayton. But by the time that Grant has dribbled inside, he and Ayton are sandwiched together, and it's a short pass through traffic that's going to be poked away if Aiton can even catch it at all, and then Aiton wouldn't have a better shot than Grant did. The troubles with the offense are basically roster-based more than system-based, and I don't have, again, a ton of complaints about them. You know what, though? Something that has nothing to do with missing shots, the reason the Blazers are losing, is because their defense is not great. Hey, you know what? It may look better than the offense, but that doesn't mean it's good. And here, I think we have some coaching issues. Now, it's also a roster issue. I understand the Blazers are short in the backcourt. They're not particularly big in the front court either. Their best offensive players, whom you have to keep on the court, otherwise you'll score 80 points, are not defenders. That is still an issue. But you know what? It seems like really often... The Blazers pick a scheme and go for it and hold it no matter what. I think of playing the Denver Nuggets, and I think it was two games ago, when they decided they were going to switch on Jokic no matter what. And he killed them. He had, what, 40 points and a triple-double, something like that? And all night long, they never altered the scheme. Now, let's be charitable. No matter what scheme they used, he was going to have trouble. But it, it was laughable at some point. 
And the Blazers don't do a good job of adjusting, in my view. If they switch, they always switch. And opponents read it after two plays, and they're exploiting it. If they don't switch, they never switch. And all of a sudden, you have the same problem going the other way. And that has nothing to do with missing shots. And you know what? A big problem with Portland's offense is that the kind of shots that you can't miss, like fast break layups and breakaway fouls in transition, the Blazers simply don't get because their defense can't hold the opponent below 50% on many nights. And when the opponent is scoring that well, you just cannot run consistently. And by the way, even if you could, all that happens is you're still playing catch-up with those points. You're never getting ahead with them. So you know what? Every time I hear, oh, the Blazers are losing. We just lost tonight because we missed some shots. It's like nails on the chalkboard to me. It's like, it's not inaccurate. You did miss the shots. But A, not an accident. B, there's more wrong than that. Now, let's go to the other side of the ledger. Here's myth number four, or misconception number four. That Portland stars are that bad. Now, it started with Scoot Henderson absolutely not being up to star level or even average NBA point guard level when he started the season. The turnovers, the missed shots, the adjustments, it looked bad. And that kind of set that ball rolling of, oh my gosh, Portland's main players are just lousy. Well, Scoot Henderson looked pretty lousy for a third overall pick for a month or two. That's a given. He's looked better since, okay? Uh, Jeremy Grant stepped in that gap and played above his head for quite a while. And he looked fantastic. Now, it did not lead to wins, which makes people complain about him. But he was really not bad. Anthony Simons, I think, is another one, especially when Scoot kind of didn't step up and then got injured. People were going, okay, we've got to shift our expectations to Anthony Simons, and he's really got to excel. And now the bar for him isn't just 22 points a game, which, by the way, he's scoring. He's what, 22.7, 22.9, something like that. I wrote the other day that Damian Lillard himself in Milwaukee is only at 24.1. Now, granted, this is not Dame's best year, and he's adjusting, but Simons is adjusting also, and they are not that far apart. So Simons' scoring total is actually fairly decent. Granted, in the new NBA, 25 points is the, you know, the new 20. Uh, a lot of players score it. But Simons is not doing poorly. He has offensive gifts. The problem is what the Blazers needed him to be was superlative. They needed 30. They need a guy who could take over every night no matter what. And the thing is, when Anthony Simons has run into double teams, which he did very quickly, once opponents figured out A, how good he was, and B, how much the Blazers relied on him, then his offense stalled, he had trouble passing, then Portland's offense slowed down, and it looked like it was all Simons' fault. It's not necessarily his fault. He's just not the premium superstar yet that they would need he's just like borderline almost star who on the right night or in the right situation could look really really good 
but cannot yet ignore the circumstances and environment around him or create those situations for himself. And that kind of summarizes where the Blazers are. It's not like their good players are that bad. They're really not. Jeremy Grant's a good player. Simon's a good player. Scoot Henderson is becoming a good player. Okay, They're going to be okay. But here's the reality. None of them is that transcendent superstar. None of them is the clear number one option. And the Blazers don't have that. And if you are looking for draft picks to pay off in the future, here's the reality. The Blazers are going to need to find that guy, or at least find a guy who's closer than the players they have now are. That's not to discount that Simons couldn't grow or Henderson couldn't grow. Look, it's possible. But really, the safest bet or the safest hope is to hope that the Blazers strike gold with either one of their own lottery picks over the next two or three years when they're not going to make the playoffs, or they get that pick from Milwaukee, 2008, 2009, pick swaps or picks or whatever they got, that Milwaukee falls out of the playoffs by then and Portland can make hay at the end by building a really solid team of number two options and borderline number ones like they have now and then add that last missing piece either through that draft or by the way trading that future draft pick and maybe one of their current players for a guy that they feel can do that either way the problem is not that the players aren't good they're just not good enough right now there is absolutely no cause to lambast or degrade the main players on the roster but there's also no reason to hope that they are going to be sufficient. And that kind of explains where the Blazers are right now. By the way, side note, go back to the trade deadline. And again, what we said about trading away players for future assets. Some people were complaining. Well, of course, you get as many future assets as you can because that's what you need. Well, not necessarily. The Blazers already have enough draft picks to probably fill out the third, fourth, fifth, all the way down to the eighth position on their roster, which is decently uh, proficient drafted players. That's not what they need more of necessarily, or to say it a different way, they're going to get those with the assets they already have. What they need is that number one guy. So the question at the trade deadline isn't, can they get future assets? Of course they could have. Can you get a future asset that you think has a reasonable chance or a good chance of giving you that number one option that you're missing? Anybody going to trade an unprotected potential lottery pick for Malcolm Brogdon? No, they're not. Are they going to trade that for Jeremy Grant? Probably not, because the team that's going to want Jeremy Grant is a team that's close to contention and is going to remain that way for a while because Grant came on board. Even if they give you an unprotected pick, you would expect it would be a mid-round pick, not a high lottery pick. So the inaction at the trade deadline has everything to do with this reality, that what they really need is premium players, or a premium player, not just a pretty good player, or more good young role players. And this brings us to our fifth misconception out of six that the young players are going to save the Blazers. Now, the Blazers do have some nice stories 
in this otherwise gloomy year. And those are important, and I understand fully why the staff and the broadcast crew and the analysts all are bringing them out. Because what else are you going to say? Boy, this stinks again. And obviously, you look at Tumani Kamara and you go, wow, this guy was a low pick who was, in essence, considered a throw-in. And the Blazers' front office looks really good right now for getting a guy that they've started even in this shaky year. And they have a reasonable expectation will grow into a really good defensive player with a potential of becoming a long-term starter if he can develop a three-point shot. That's a great story. Rob Reef is a great story. Matisse Thibel with those steals and playing the passing range is a great story. And you need those stories so you don't despair in this valley. However, there's a difference between those being good stories and those being great players. And, you know, here's the deal. Those statistical things that people do, you've heard this, right? Only five players in history have performed this feat. Game Elijah Wong, Michael Jordan, Bob Cousy, Oscar Robertson, and Shecky Gruberman. And Shecky's on your team, right? Okay, one of these things is not like the other. And it's patently obvious when this has happened. These stories about the Blazers' young players is kind of the same thing. Look, it's nice. But if you think Tumani Kamara and Matisse Thibel and Jabari Walker are going to be the answer to put Portland in contention, you're probably mistaken. Now, could they be the basis for a nice mid-rotation crew that you trust in, or a low-rotation crew even? Could you bring Kamara off the bench as a 10th man all day long, even on a contender? We can forecast that right now. He might be higher than that. He could be a starter. But if you say the Blazers are going to be okay because they have Tumani Kamara, that is probably not right. The same thing with Jabari Walker. Coaching staff loves him. It's a joy to watch him play. He's not the answer. And you know what? You're going to see the Blazers have to make some decisions going down the road, especially with these new draft picks coming in. They may not even be able to keep all of these players because what if another power forward comes in and you have to make the same decision about Jabari Walker and this new guy that you drafted that you did last year about Jabari Walker and Trendon Watford, which, by the way, the Blazers also love and to whom the Blazers also gave an extended contract. Not all of them can stay. Not all of them can play. So the Blazers have some glittery hope, some, some little pieces, little gems in the midst of this journey to tuck in the belt pouch. They don't have a rotation or a roster yet, even with these young guys. And nothing that we say this year is going to change that. Here's the hope, I think. You hope that two of them are going to stick and become really, really productive over the years. And if the Blazers get two, 
I think that they're doing okay. If they get more than that out of their young players, you know, Chris Murray and Real Rupert and whoever, that I, they're doing great. If they get three or they get four, throw up your hands. If they get five, you should throw a party right now. Because you know what? That would actually be super cool. Then they just use their draft picks to build above that layer, and they're good to go. But there's no guarantee that any of them are going to stick right now. And so we need to reset a little bit, applaud, and absolutely uphold the, the good parts of this season without saying then, well, okay, we're penciling this in for the future because that future not only isn't written yet, it just doesn't exist. Let's get to the sixth one. And this one's a little more personal and, I don't know, maybe more emotional. And we're going to circle back to the first one where we said the misconception is that losing is that bad. You know what? It's not that bad to be in the orbit of this team or to cover this team right now. And I say this because I've seen a lot of, you know, expected vitriol in the comments. It's hard to lose. I get it. It's hard when you see things going wrong in front of you that you know shouldn't. And yet they're going to anyway. Completely get it. Not trying to sugarcoat it. It's hard to watch. This team is a bad team right now. Uh, my children enjoyed watching the Blazers for a couple years. They'd watch them with me. I do not ask them to do so right now because I don't want to ruin their young fandom. It's okay if they don't want to watch. They probably shouldn't. This is difficult. But you know what? It isn't torture. There are still bright spots. There is still Scoot Henderson making fantastic drives or developing. You still do get to see Matisse Thibel or Simons or Grant have wonderful games or DeAndre Ayton show up. There are reasons to like this team. There are also reasons to hope for this team. If I itch when fans go overboard, I'm really itching and I don't understand it what I'm hearing from local media? Because you know what? I get it. You get jaded. Again, 18 years doing this now. I've seen a couple things. However, it is still a joy and a privilege to be able to cover professional basketball and professional basketball players. These are still, if not the best, then certainly among the very best players in the world. These are still the most solid organizations, the most valuable organizations, the most weighty organizations anywhere on the planet. You still have probably the best collection of basketball minds assembled anywhere in the world right here among these 30 teams. And there is no call, no call to turn on this franchise or to turn on its staff members or its players because they are making a generational shift. That is not the same as me saying that they are doing well. Again, my, my famous line about Coach Billups is, there's no reason to fire him, no reason to be overly angry at him. It is not his fault. There's also no reason to retain him. 
Would I personally, and I apologize to Coach Phillips and his agent and others who might hear this, this is not my call. This is just a hack opinion of a dude talking into the microphone. I will say that, and I respect what you do. I could not do what you do. I do not mean to imply otherwise. If you're just asking me as an observer, which people do, would I re-up Coach Chauncey Billups at the end of his contract? I would not at this point. Okay? There's no reason to fire him and to hate. There's also no reason to retain him and to say he's doing a great job. That is also true of most or many of the parts of this organization. They're undergoing a seismic shift that in some ways was inevitable and also is really hard to negotiate and is going to result in losses and disappointments and frustration. No matter what happens, that was going to be true. And that was ordained the moment they put all of their eggs in the Damian Lillard basket and then went out and bought an egg factory so they could dump even more in there. As soon as the franchise became associated with one player, with Damian Lillard, and that's how they survived during the latter parts of the Neil Olshay era when things were falling apart, the answer was, hey, there's always Dame, and we've got Dame, and Dame is the face, and Dame has the charisma, and Dame is the franchise, and you know what? What happens when Dame leaves? And by the way, if you want to talk about the reliability of some of these misconceptions in media, ask how that was talked about in the two years before he left. Who was saying that, you know what? You have to be careful, and you can't pin this guy to his decisions because the world may look different in the next year or two. He has the right to ask for a trade. He has the right to not stay with the franchise, and he has the power to do so, and you need to have your eyes open that this is happening and maybe make some contingency plans. And guess what the entire environment said? You want something spicy in the podcast? Here you go. Everybody said, you don't know what the hell you are talking about. This is heresy. This is blah, blah. In Dame, we trust. In Neil, we trust. In blah, blah, we trust. Bull crap. And it's not because we were so right and everybody else was wrong. It's because this is the reality of the league, folks. And the moment you invested that much in Damian Lillard, you also agreed to lose that much and transition this hard when he left. That is not the fault of the current regime. I'm not passing judgment on the last regime for it necessarily either. Maybe they didn't have a choice. And hey, if you were going to invest like that, Damian Lillard was a pretty darn good player to invest in. However... It's absolutely disingenuous now to write poison pen screeds about this franchise and the way things are going when this was always going to happen and no power on earth could stop it once that commitment was made. Now, in two years, we may have an argument. If the Blazers are flatlined, draft terribly, forgive me, but have the same coach and the same systemic problems, etc., etc., and nothing has changed? Oh, yeah. At that point, it is both honest and true to bring out the criticism and to put some mustard on that hot dog. But right now, there's barely a bun to set anything on. And I just absolutely roll my eyes when I hear 
so-called experts talk about how hard it is to write about or talk about this team. You know what? It ain't that hard because there are a lot of things to notice and to analyze and to talk about. And this is from someone who doesn't even have the access to the team at this point that many of these professionals do. You know what? Perspective. It was a hell of a lot worse in 2004 and 2005. Anybody remember passing over Chris Paul for Martel Webster and Jarrett Jack? Because I do, and I'm not saying that that was automatically understandable at the time. But you know what? In retrospect, that was one of the biggest bungles ever. And it happened at or near one of the lowest points of the franchise ever. Anybody remember drafting Sebastian Telfair and then hitching the horse to him? That was scary. Like, he was halfway through his rookie season, and you're going like, oh, wow, this might not work. All right. The Blazers have way more hope, way more of a foundation, a way better roster right now than they had back then. And even if the wins aren't there any more now than then, they are not experiencing the same deficit, the same cultural black hole, the same despair, or the same lack of direction that they had during that era. That was way worse. This is a picnic in comparison. So you know what? In a way, I think we all need to toughen up a little bit. And we need to be able to speak truth, but speak truth in a way that is measured, and in a way that truly reflects what is going on with this team and its young players and its young GM and its inexperienced coach. And when we do that, we're going to see that even if the situation doesn't get better, that our participation in it will. And after all, for people like you and me, who talk into microphones, who write on keyboards, and who consume that media, that is half the point. Well, I hope that you have enjoyed this very first episode of Trail Daddy. We will be here weekly. It will post and publish at this time, so you can subscribe, hit like, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell anyone who needs both a dash of reality and a ray of hope that they can find both here. And I am David Deckard, and we will see you again next week, and we'll say it at least one time, Go Blazers!